In July, I was at an ice cream store in Texas one evening with my family and some friends for dessert after dinner. After we had our ice cream, we asked the customer to help take our group picture. After taking our group picture, he looked at me and he said loudly, Do you remember me? As if he knew me and suddenly recognized me. I looked at him and didn't remember him at all. Granted, I'm not really great with remembering names and faces, and I don't have the best of memories, especially having spoken at many conferences and churches in the U.S. But I really didn't remember this Caucasian guy who said he knew me. I said, I'm Stephen, and a pastor. Where would I have met you, sir? He shook my hands and then leaned in and whispered, I really don't know you, and you don't know me. But do you see that girl I'm with? I'm going to surprise her and propose to her after we finish our ice cream. And I was wondering if you would not mind following us and using your camera phone to record a video of my surprise proposal to her by my car in the parking lot. I wasn't sure if this was a ploy or prank or something to test my kindness, but it really seemed suspicious and sketchy, and my natural warning bells were heightened. I didn't know if he would rob me or maybe kidnap me at gunpoint when I went out with him and his girlfriend to their car. But when you're asked for a favor like this, what would you do? I already told him I'm a pastor, and pastors are supposed to be nice, friendly, and accommodating. Reluctantly, I said yes and waited for them to finish their ice cream and follow them inconspicuously into the dark parking lot to their car. I had my son Andrew follow me from behind a few meters back just in case something happened to me and my son could call for help. To my relief, when they got to their car, he did propose to his girlfriend and I was able to record the proposal on video and took their photos and I sent it to them. He kept taking me profusely for capturing the moment. As I think about this incident, I recognize how hard at times it is to be an effective Christian witness for the Lord in this world. When we carry the title of Christian, even more so pastor, it puts a lot of responsibility and pressure on us. At times, we let it affect us when we place too much pressure on ourselves trying to live a perfect life, or we get overzealous in demanding that someone accept Christ or we don't know how to strike the right balance in talking about normal things and talking about Christ. We can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul about how to be an effective witness in how he handled some rather difficult people and situations. Let's learn from his example for how to be an effective Christian witness as we continue our sermon series, Voyager, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 25 and 26. Acts chapter 25 and 26 is the passage we're going to take a look at. Through the example of Paul, I would like to draw out four biblical principles through four questions we need to ask ourselves so that we can be an effective witness for Christ in this generation. As you're turning to Acts chapter 25, by way of background, remember Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem by the Jewish religious authorities who wanted to kill him for telling people about Jesus. But because Paul was a Roman citizen and there was a plot to kill him, 
He was taken to the Roman provincial capital of Caesarea Maritima and turned over to the Roman governor, Felix, who would decide what to do with him. Now, Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but didn't release him because he wanted to curry favor with the Jews. Instead, Felix kept Paul in jail for two years until he was replaced by Rome with Governor Festus. And this is where we pick up the story. I read now verses 1 to 5 of Acts chapter 25. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. When Festus went to Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders asked the new governor to have Paul sent back to Jerusalem from Caesarea, where they would then assassinate Paul somewhere along the road. But Festus wisely did not agree to this and said that he would try Paul in Caesarea if any of the religious leaders would accompany him and make a formal accusation regarding Paul. Verses 6 to 9. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? During this fourth trial since his arrest in Jerusalem, this time before Festus, the first three being in front of the Jewish mob in Jerusalem, before the Sanhedrin and commander Claudius Lysias, and before Governor Felix. The Jewish leaders again made the same accusations against Paul, which they had made before. They wanted to portray Paul as a menace to Roman society and therefore should be dealt with harshly. But like in the previous trials, as verse 7 recounts, they could not provide any evidence for their baseless accusations. Paul's defense was basically, I've done nothing wrong against Roman or Jewish law. Not wanting to antagonize the Jews and not sure what else to do, Festus asked Paul if he wanted to be tried in Jerusalem as it had been the request of the Jewish leaders. Apparently, as a Roman citizen who was not yet convicted, Paul had rights, and he used those rights available to him. Look at Paul's response to Festus' suggestion in verses 10 to 12. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Perhaps knowing that he would not get a fair trial in Jerusalem 
because there would be even more pressure placed upon Festus by the Jewish leaders to convict Paul, notwithstanding an unknown plot to assassinate him on the journey to Jerusalem, Paul did not agree to this arrangement. Instead, he appealed to Caesar as was his right as a Roman citizen. Perhaps he realized this was the only way to get to Rome, having been stuck in Caesarea for two years with this political impasse. He knew that he was innocent under Roman law and that under Caesar's judgment, he would get a fairer trial with a secular audience than with the biased Jewish religious audience who was out to get him since day one. To get this politically sensitive case out of his hands, Governor Festus quickly granted Paul's appeal. Now, he could have released Paul just like Felix before him, but as we've noted before, as unfair as it was, Paul was caught in political and religious issues beyond his own simple innocence or guilt. As long as Paul's conscience was clear and he did the right thing before the Lord, he didn't worry too much about what he had no control over. For Paul knew that God was using these events to orchestrate for him an opportunity to witness for Jesus before people he otherwise would not have had an opportunity to do so. By appealing to Caesar, Paul was wisely choosing the appropriate time, venue, and audience by which to share about Jesus and give his defense of the Christian faith. He knew the audience in Jerusalem would not be sympathetic and in fact have closed minds. But while in Rome before Caesar, he would have a better chance of getting his message across. In this way, Paul was an effective Christian witness. Time and time again throughout his ministry, Paul would choose the right time, place, and audience to have spiritual conversations. Like when he talked to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, or conversed with the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens. In the same way, to be an effective Christian witness, we have to first ask ourselves this question. Number one, is the time, venue, and audience appropriate to engage in spiritual conversation? Is the time, venue, and audience appropriate to engage in spiritual conversation? Sometimes we don't think about these considerations when sharing the gospel or engaging in spiritual conversations. Perhaps the timing is inappropriate, such as when the occasion is not right to have a conversation about spiritual matters. For example, in a birthday celebration of an elderly person, it's probably not the best time to ask them this question. If you were to die today, do you know where you would go, heaven or hell? Someone is celebrating another year of life and you're talking about their death. The timing would be inappropriate. Or if someone is very hungry and hasn't yet eaten, and then you ask them, if you were to die, how sure are you you will go to heaven? I'm sure they would be thinking, if I don't eat now, I'm going to die, so let me eat first. As has been said, no one is going to listen to you if their stomachs are hungry. In fact, I once went to a home where they prayed after meals and not before because the Father told me that is the only time when they could really pray. If they prayed before, everyone wanted the prayer to be short and over with so that they could eat. But if praying after they ate, it resulted in a better prayer time for their family. 
I think you know what I'm talking about. Don't have spiritual conversations if you're rushing and pressed for time, or don't have the time to listen to someone else's questions or engage in deep conversation. Regarding venue, it's probably not the best place to engage in spiritual and biblical conversations over social media. Not only can your tone not be heard, but people can easily misconstrue and twist what you say. Also, it's hard to really fully express the nuances of spiritual things when engaged in a heated back and forth on social media. If you're having a spiritual conversation, it's probably not the best idea to have those conversations in a noisy venue with lots of distractions. Find a quiet place to have those talks. With regard to audience, there is no need to argue and debate with those who really have no interest in having a civilized and open-minded conversation. You may just be wasting your time as you get frustrated. As Proverbs 23 verse 9 reminds us, there is no need to talk to fools, meaning don't waste your time with those whose minds are closed. Now, this doesn't mean we don't share the gospel to unbelievers, which the Great Commission requires us to do. But if their hearts are really closed to the things of God, arguing with them won't help. The best thing to do is to live your life to show them what a Christ follower looks like and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts as you pray for them. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5 of that book and admonishes them to live wisely and not as fools, redeeming the time. Because Paul knows time is limited and precious. His point was don't spend all of your energy trying to argue with someone whose mind is already closed to spiritual things. My friends, an effective witness for Christ does not force, manipulate, and coerce. They look for the appropriate time, venue, and audience to engage people in spiritual conversations, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in hearts. Now look at me at verses 13 and 22. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters." But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. The Jewish king, King Agrippa II, and his wife Bernice happened to come to Caesarea, presumably to pay respect to the new Roman governor. Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, 
who was the Jewish king during the time of Jesus' birth. Agrippa II was the last of the Herodian dynasty, and in a family of ruthless leaders was considered to be the best. While ruler of the region northeast of the Judean province, he was also given the authority to appoint Israel's high priests and was essentially the custodian of the Jewish temple. And that's why Governor Festus consulted with Agrippa about this case concerning Paul, because Agrippa was part Jewish and a Herod, as well as supposedly being an expert in Jewish matters. Festus told Agrippa in verse 19 that the charges against Paul brought by the Jewish leaders were seemingly religious in nature, and specifically about a man named Jesus who had died, but Paul claimed he was alive. This exchange showed that Festus believed Paul to be innocent and thought this matter was just a difference of opinion over a religious matter. Agrippa took an interest in this case and wanted to hear out Paul so Festus would make it happen. Look at verse 23 to 27. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. The Bible tells us that King Agrippa and Bernice came into the auditorium with great pomp and fanfare, along with the commanders and the prominent men of this Roman provincial capital. And of course, Governor Festus was there. Paul now had an audience in the auditorium full of the most prominent people in the Roman province of Palestine. Festus basically told everyone that in his mind, Paul was innocent, and that instead of Jerusalem, he would be sending Paul to Rome. However, the reason for this gathering was to hear Paul because he needed something to write to the Roman emperor for why Paul was being sent to him. It's almost laughable, the circumstances that has led to this, but we can clearly see how the Lord has orchestrated it so that Paul now has a terrific platform to share about Jesus with all the prominent people assembled. What is interesting is that Paul's message was so compelling that throughout these chapters in the book of Acts, it seemed like everyone wanted to hear him. We see that the previous governor, Felix, wanted to listen to Paul. In fact, he and his wife, Drusilla, heard Paul's explanation and would call for Paul to speak to them on many occasions, as the previous chapter tells us. And now you have Festus giving Paul a hearing. And when told of the situation, King Agrippa and Bernice also wanted to listen to Paul. It could have just been a private audience with the king, but Festus now thought everyone should hear Paul, and so he assembled the dignitaries of the Roman province to come and listen. So what was so compelling that Paul's message was worth listening to? Well, verse 19 
gives us a clue. It was because Paul's message centered on Christ. Throughout his ministry, Paul always talked about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He did that in every city he visited. He did that before Felix and Festus. And as we shall see in chapter 26, he will again do so before King Agrippa. Paul shared how the risen Jesus changed his life. Paul's message was so compelling to so many because it was about Jesus, not about himself. My friends, do you share a message worth listening to? Why should people want to listen to you? Why should they hear you out? That is the question we should be asking ourselves. You see, to be an effective Christian witness, we should be asking ourselves the question, number two, do I share a compelling message worth listening to? Do I share a compelling message worth listening to? Essentially, do you talk about a Savior who alone can save people from their sins? Do you talk about the hopelessness of mankind because we cannot save ourselves, but that there is hope found in Jesus? Do you speak of the love and grace offered by God through His Son to people who have messed up and have made mistakes? Do you testify of the greatness of Almighty God who can do the impossible and therefore can solve any of life's problems that we encounter? Do you tell of Jesus who gives us something more to live for in life, an eternal perspective and purpose by which to live for, to give us satisfaction from our routinary lives? My friends, while the world may say they want to know how to be rich monetarily, the real need of their soul is one can know how to be truly joyful and satisfied in life. These are the compelling messages the world wants to hear and needs to hear. And it all centers on Jesus. What is the message you bring to the world that would make them want to listen to you? If you don't share about Jesus in some form or fashion, you really don't have a compelling message worth listening to. I read now verses 1 to 8 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My matter of life for my youth, which was spent for the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? In verses 1 to 23, Paul shared his testimony. He began by telling the assembled audience that since his youth, he was a strict adherent to the Jewish laws and customs as a premier Pharisee. In fact, Paul lived a life that was so outwardly righteous that everyone in the Jewish community knew of him. But his outward righteousness and action was misplaced 
and the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, would confront Paul on his way to Damascus. Paul was convinced and convicted to place his trust in the Messiah Jesus who had appeared to him and converted to becoming a Christ follower, adhering to the very truth he fought so hard against. You see, in telling his conversion story, the Apostle Paul was telling the audience listening that it didn't matter how righteous he thought he was, nor how good others thought he was. Even someone as pious and holy like him needed a Savior. And he was glad the Lord Jesus made him realize this on the way to Damascus. You know, I think we often forget at times that even good people need a Savior. There is no one living on this earth that is so good and holy that they are guaranteed entry into heaven. God's standard is perfect holiness, which no one is. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 reminds us that no one is righteous, not one. That's why anyone who does not place their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is destined for hell. They are destined for eternal separation from God. So in his defense, Paul told the audience that he was charged by Jesus with a mission to tell all people, great and small, about their greatest need, the need for a Savior. Paul's life story and testimony focused on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus. My friends, is this your story when people ask you about your life? If people wanted to know you more, if new people wanted to get to know you and hear about your life, is Jesus anywhere in that narrative or story as you tell it? You see, to be an effective Christian witness, we need to ask ourselves the question, number three, is my life story focused on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus? Is my life story focused on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus? You know, some people believe that they need a powerful story of leaving a life of drugs, gambling, infidelity, prostitution, rebellion, prison, loss, betrayal, robbery, and any other major sin, and then turning to Jesus before they can share their Christian testimony. However, my friends, don't forget that one of the most powerful stories is the one that most of us live, that even good people like us, who has never committed a crime and has never been imprisoned and followed all the rules and have never fallen into the terrible vices of life, need a Savior. Because if quote-unquote good people like us, as the world defines us, need a Savior, how much more the others who have really messed up their lives? I hope you see my point. We all need a Savior, and our life story should focus on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus. A few months ago, I was invited to one of Houston, Texas's best-known steakhouse, aptly named Taste of Texas a family-owned steakhouse with a storied history that employs more than 200 and serves more than 1,000 customers a day. I happened to meet the owner, Nina Hendy, and she personally took our family on a tour of her restaurant, which looked very much like a museum with all the Texas memorabilia. I thought she was just another friendly restaurateur until I came to know of her powerful story and testimony. In 1971, High school junior Nina was 17 years old and unmarried.
when she got pregnant. She faced a dilemma that would change her life forever. It was absolutely unacceptable for the 17-year-old daughter of a fairly prominent family to be pregnant at that time in our society, she said. But that was her reality. Instead of secretly terminating the pregnancy, she made the courageous and inconvenient decision to carry her baby full term and surrender him to adoption. She held that baby in her arm just once for 20 minutes and telling him everything that was on her heart to say, all of her prayers, all of her hopes, and all of her dreams for his life. As she handed him over to the nurse, she handed him over to God with fervent, heartfelt prayers that he would be raised by a family who feared God and loved him with all of their heart as she did. And then she never saw him again. Soon after, she met her now husband, raised a family, and they started the very successful restaurant. She had also been steadfast in prayer that one day she might find the son she gave up for adoption in 1971. She told her children about their brother when they were teenagers, but adoption records in that era were permanently sealed. She believed she would never see him again. Until the day a letter showed up in her mailbox 48 years later, shortly before Christmas of 2019, from the son she had surrendered long ago. The letter was from a man named Kyle Paulson, who had gone on the long, arduous, and vulnerable journey to find his birth mother. Kyle's adoptive mother, before she passed away, had encouraged him to look for his birth mother. Kyle's search had included refusal from two judges to open the records, a third judge who opened the records with his mother's name redacted, and then a private investigator who found that Nina was Kyle's birth mother. They reunited in 2020. Their reunion was sweet and rich and redemptive. Redemptive for several reasons. First, all of Nina's prayers for 48 years for her son were realized and confirmed when Kyle walked into the room. He was adopted by parents who raised him as their beloved son with a strong and nurturing love for the Lord and for other people. They helped Kyle grow into a wonderful Christian family man. Second, 13 years ago, on February 13 of 2010, Nina lost her son, Ed Hendy, in a tragic skiing accident. He left behind a grieving wife, children, parents, and two beautiful sisters, and Nina thought she had lost her only son. But God has a strange and miraculous, almost incomprehensible way of redeeming every story. When Kyle walked back into Nina's life and into her family's life 48 years later, Nina got back a son. Now, no one can replace her son, Ed, but the Lord patched up a hole that was in her heart by allowing her to reunite with her first son. Nina's story is the ability of God to give us back here on this earth in small part what we've lost with the sure promise of all He will restore and redeem one day in the future. Nina's life story is centered on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus. Her willingness to carry her first baby to full term and then give him up for adoption was because of her faith in Jesus. The success of her business and allowing her to have a loving family was because of Jesus. The story of reunion and restoration 
of loss in her life and that of her son Kyle's was because of Jesus. That is what makes this story so compelling that you can easily find it told all over the internet if you Google Nina Hendy. And I was privileged enough to meet her personally by accident and was so blessed by her story about Jesus in her life. Indeed, if you meet her, you can tell her life is spirit-filled because she simply oozes Jesus Christ. My friends, is your life story focused on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus? Do you speak forth Jesus in your life? I read now verses 24 to 32. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. When Paul had shared what he had shared, Festus yelled out that Paul was mad. But Paul defended himself before the Roman governor and said he was not mad nor insane, but spoke words of truth and reason. Paul addressed King Agrippa personally and said, Do you believe what I said? Agrippa admitted that Paul's words were indeed compelling and that he was almost persuaded to become a Christian, to which Paul replied that it was his desire for Agrippa and all the dignitaries and all who were listening to be like him, Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ. Festus, Agrippa, and some officials discussed what Paul had said, and they all came to the conclusion that he had done nothing wrong and could have been set free. But since Paul had appealed to Caesar, there was nothing they could do to free him. They could only send him on his way to Rome. Now, we may think it's too bad that Paul was not freed at this point. But as we will see, this was God's will that Paul be sent to the seat of the Roman Empire, where he can continue to speak boldly for Jesus Christ to leaders and influential people in the capital city. And perhaps, as tradition tells us, even to the Caesar himself. You see, Paul's one desire was to see life change in all people through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. As this was a charge from the Lord himself, Paul recognized his responsibility to share Jesus. He didn't mind being called crazy. He wasn't disappointed when someone almost believed. His sole desire was to see lives changed in all the people he had the opportunity to share the gospel with. And Paul's attitude gives us insight into why he was such an effective Christian witness. You see, he recognized that his only responsibility was to share about Jesus 
and not to worry about anything else. It was not his responsibility to change hearts, to persuade, to convince, or convict people to believe in Jesus, because that is the job of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone has the power to convict and change hearts. His responsibility is only to share Jesus even if they thought he was crazy or if they didn't believe. And this is the fourth question we need to ask ourselves if we are to be effective Christian witnesses. Number four, do I understand my responsibility is only to share Jesus and not to change hearts? Do I understand my responsibility is only to share Jesus and not to change hearts? My friends, this truth is important to realize and understand because it takes the pressure off of us when we share Jesus. It minimizes our fears that we're somehow failures if someone else doesn't believe. Even King Agrippa was almost persuaded but didn't actually believe when the great evangelist Paul shared the gospel. This truth helps us understand our own limitations and gives us a responsibility that is doable and realistic. You know, I've been called many names for believing in Jesus Christ. I've had a door slammed in my face for sharing the gospel. I've been canceled, ghosted, gaslighted, and blocked on social media because I share Christ publicly and personally. But I don't mind because it is my responsibility that the Lord has given me to share about Him. And in fact, it is a responsibility given to all of you as well. My friends, don't let the fear of rejection affect this responsibility that you and I have. You and I only have to share Jesus. It is God's responsibility to work and change hearts. And so is our Christian responsibility, without excuse, as followers of Christ, because of the Great Commission, to share Jesus with others, inviting them to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. Are you and I fulfilling this responsibility? and being effective witnesses? To be an effective witness like Paul, remember to ask yourselves these questions. Number one, is the time, venue, and audience appropriate to engage in spiritual conversation? Number two, do I share a compelling message worth listening to? Number three, is my life story focused on the salvation and life transformation offered by Jesus? Number four, do I understand my responsibility is only to share Jesus and not to change hearts? May God challenge us to be effective witnesses for Him in this world because this world needs Jesus to provide hope for the hopelessness they experience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the life of the Apostle Paul and that through his example, we have so many things to learn from. He was indeed an effective witness before people that were very difficult and even critical of him in situations that were harsh and difficult. And yet he stood as an effective witness because he preached Christ crucified and resurrected. His life reflected you. May that be our life. May we not fear people or even the situations we are put in, but may our lives reflect you. May our lives be lived in such a way that the testimony to the world is effective. Help us to understand that we are simply called to share Jesus, but it is not our responsibility to change hearts. That's yours. So that gives us the fervor 
to do more the work of the Great Commission. Father, I pray that when we go out into the world, that the message we share through our spoken words and through the life we live will indeed be a message worth listening to because it is the message of Jesus in my life, in our life, and how He has transformed us. Bless your people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.